Micah chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 5a. That's Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With the rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, shall, uh, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of, ancient, from, from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth then the rest of her brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now Micah, uh, and I'm going to focus on our verses at hand, but just to kind of give a broader overview. Micah himself, this prophet, was a contemporary of the, of the prophet Isaiah. And his ministry was primarily to the southern tribes, the southern two tribes that constituted the nation of Judah after the split of the nation of Israel. And even though his ministry was directed primarily towards the southern tribes in the capital city of Jerusalem, he, he, he also prophesied to the ten northern tribes whose capital was Samaria. In fact, uh, Micah foretells or prophesies about the coming overthrow that will occur to the northern kingdom. We see this especially in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, where he indicates that Samaria will be overthrown, or Samaria and the ten northern tribes, primarily because of idolatry. They were guilty of a number of other things, but he mentions idolatry in particular. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1, he says, uh, Alas, the transgressions, uh, alas, for the, for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria itself, the, the, the central city, which was the city of worship for the ten northern tribes. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour, I will pour down her stones into the valley and over, uncover the foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols will I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute uh, she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. So essentially, God is saying that the primary problem with Samaria, they were guilty of many other things, 
But the primary thing, and one of the reasons he lays seeds to this or he um, lays emphasis on this is because after the split and they established Samaria as the place of worship, it was primarily as jealousy because they didn't want the northern people to go back down into Judah, into Jerusalem to worship. And so they had an alternate place of worship, but even in the establishment of that place of worship, it was based on false religion. So therefore, Judah, uh, or Israel, the ten northern tribes, are established as, uh, they, they are as guilty as their holy city. And so the Lord lays to them the charge of idolatry as one of their primary sins. And as a consequence of this, the Lord also will raise up the nation of Assyria. He will raise up Assyria as a rod of chastening against the northern tribes, and that would eventually lead to the scattering of the ten northern tribes. And then also, even at the time of the overthrow of Samaria and the ten northern tribes, Assyria, which is probably one of the backdrops of our text this morning, would also lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, they will not succeed. But our text will deal with the fact that they are laying siege to, the, uh, siege to the city. And even though they will not be victorious, but eventually the Lord would raise up Babylon to overthrow Judah. So here we see again, uh, Micah is prophesying that the Lord will bring judgment on the ten tribes. And another thing to hold in mind when we speak of God dealing with the split kingdom. The nation of Israel, the natural descendants of Abraham, they split and they saw themselves as two different nations, but God always saw them as one. And for this reason, we, even though Israel, the ten northern tribes, are judged, that doesn't mean that God doesn't see them. They are scattered and will never be gathered again, uh, again as a nation. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't see them as one. And so therefore he continues to raise up the voice of the prophets even after the overthrow of, of Assyria. And the Lord still speaks and uses Israel's rebellion as a means of warning the tent of the two southern tribes. Now we also see in chapter 1 verses 8 through 16 that Micah warns the southern tribes even as he has spoken of the overthrow of the northern tribes. In verses 8 through 16 he warns the southern tribes that they too are the subject of divine rebuke and divine retribution. Now if the chief sin of the northern tribes was idolatry, doesn't mean they weren't guilty of other things. The chief sin of the southern tribes is what we would call justice issues. There was corruption and there was uh, oppression on the part of those who governed as well as those who were more propertied and they took, uh, they took uh, well they showed disregard for truth in general and they had a disregard for all of the people that were, as we would say, less fortunate. Now, Micah does speak directly to the heart. And, and by the way, if you look at those two primary or chief 
sins of the northern tribes, which is idolatry, and the southern tribes, which is primarily as it relates to oppression and the perversion of justice, since God sees them as one, what we see, and we know they would be guilty of the whole law, but what we see is in the north they are guilty uh, primarily of the first table of the law. They did not love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, and strength. They did not keep themselves free from idolatry. And then we see in the, second, in the southern kingdom, we see a violation of the second table of the law in that they do not love their neighbors as themselves. And so what God sees in this united people is a violation of both tables of the law. And so, therefore, we see in uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Micah raises the rhetorical question or he makes an assessment and he puts it in the form of a rhetorical question. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Well, guilty on both charges as it relates to the northern tribes because they have not walked humbly before the Lord and worshipped him in spirit and in truth and guilty to the, the, the lower or the southern tribes because they have not proven their love for God in their love for neighbors. Now, as we mentioned, Assyria would eventually overthrow uh, Samaria and the ten northern tribes uh, that made up the kingdom of Israel. Their demise would come, and it would come, and the, the temple and the places of worship would be overthrown. And then 35 years later, the Lord would bring uh, a demise even to the southern tribes at the hand of Babylon. In the interim, as, as Assyria overthrows the ten northern tribes, they do pose a threat to the south. And so therefore, as a result of that, like most of the books of the prophets, Micah's prophecies fall along two lines. Actually, the book itself consists of roughly 19 different messages, a series of 19 different messages, and those messages consist of one of two things. On the one hand, he issues messages of warning and judgment, and those warnings are, and judgments are nothing less than the announcement of God's covenant curses on his covenant people for their failure to keep the spirit of the law that he has given to them. Now, in addition to the covenant curses, and that's what we see in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, or, or 5 through 7 that we just cited, and then the messages to the southern tribes. Those are judgments, or as one would say, those are, uh, uh, those are legal claims against the people of God for their failure to keep God's covenant. And then also, the prophets not only give us messages of judgment, but also messages of promise. And there are, so therefore in Micah, there's a series of gospel proclamations. And here's the difference between the announcements of covenant curses. In the judgments, God curses his own people for failing to keep his law. But in the gospel announcements, 
God declares his gracious salvation and the gift of righteousness that he gives to guilty people. So in other words, he, he indicts them for their failures. And then the promise of salvation is to give them the very thing that they failed to be able to keep. One of the things that we've pointed out recently in our study of the prophets, and especially the post-exilic prophets, and that would include Ezekiel and Haggai and Zechariah and a number of others, but one of the characteristics of the post-exilic prophets is that when God promises them a new kingdom and a new temple and he makes all of these promises and that he will gather them and they will be his people, it is not on the basis of their own obedience. He, in other words, he tells them they will obey and they will, as we see in Ezekiel, that he will, they will, they will obey him, but their obedience is not the basis of them becoming his people. And that's the difference between the covenant curses and the covenant blessings. In the covenant curses, they, are, they will lose the land, they will lose the, the, the promises of God because of their failure. But in the covenant promises, the, the announcements of the gospel, God does take into consideration their failures and he pardons their failures and what he promises to give them in his gospel announcement is on the basis of his faithfulness and not on the basis of their goodness. Now with that, that's what leads us into our text, which is actually part of the gospel announcements. And as we know, the most famous part of this passage is verses 2 through 4, where it speaks of Jerusalem, or it speaks of, excuse me, Bethlehem, because from there the Savior is born. But I want to look at three things in particular as it relates to understanding God's gospel, the announcement of the gospel. And certainly what the celebration of the first advent of the Lord is, is God fulfilling his, his gospel promises. So three things. One is the context of the gospel promise, the context of God's gospel promise. Notice in verse 1, and verse 1, it, it speaks of, this, of, of people laying siege. And as we mentioned, most likely it's referencing two things. It's referencing the siege that is laid by the, or at the city of Jerusalem around the time that, that, that Assyria had already overthrown the northern kingdom. And they did pose like a 10-year threat to Jerusalem, and they felt that they were going to be overthrown. And part of the ministry of Micah is to tell them, yes, don't worry about them. Your judgment is yet to come. You will survive this. And so possibly some have suggested that, that Micah has in view the period when, when, when Assyria almost laid siege and they did encamp around the city of Jerusalem and gave every appearance or gave, gave every indication that they were going to overthrow the city, but God allowed them to prevail. So on the one hand, he's possibly referring to that. But then notice in verse 1, he doesn't just speak of a siege that, that would be averted. He speaks of a siege that is laid against them and the fact, notice what it says, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel. 
in which case he's either referring to the moment when it happens or prophesying futuristically when Babylon would succeed where Assyria failed. In any event, the circumstances is this. The people of God are surrounded, and this includes eventually the overthrow of, of, of Jerusalem, it would include the destruction of the temple, and it would include the subjugation of the king. And from all outward appearances, there is no hope. From all outward appearances, the promises of God seem to be lost, and they are unable to do anything. They can't help themselves because the enemy is greater. They can't help themselves because the enemy is animated by the hand of God himself. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about the Advent season, especially as we ground it in the prophets and the, the messianic prophecies, it is usually in association with darkness. And the darkness, even as we see it in Isaiah or in the New Testament, in John's prologue to the gospel, that the world was in darkness. And here's the idea, here's the context of the gospel. The context of the gospel is the darkness of sin that has thrown us into a helpless and otherwise hopeless situation. If what is being alluded to here is the actual overthrow by Babylon, then what Babylon has done is they have taken the highest seat of power that is perceived by the people of God and it has been crushed. What Babylon has done at the time of the overthrow, and especially because they did it in, they, they did it in stages, they, they, they exiled the people in stages, and one of the things that they did is they overthrew the power source so that the promise of the seed of David seemed to be wasted. And isn't that the context of the gospel? Isn't that exactly what Paul describes to us in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, when you were dead in trespasses and sins? Isn't that our state before we received the gospel that the king has been overthrown in our hearts? And darkness is what reigns and what dominates. What we see in verse 1 is a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation where their power source is gone. A hopeless situation where there is no alliances that will be able to extract them from the hand of the enemy that the Lord himself has raised. Brothers and sisters, the context for the gospel in any given situation is the helplessness and the hopelessness of the human condition. But that leads us to the second thing. What is essentially being promised here? What is God promising in this gospel message? One of the reasons it's important to be clear on what God is promising is because the language of his promise is expanded in other places so much so that we can sometimes miss what he's actually promising to do. For instance, in Isaiah 61 that is used by Jesus when he begins his public ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor and to bring sight to the blind, to set the captives free, 
and those who sat in jail to be, for them to be set free. And it's easy for people to define the gospel by those external things. But what is God essentially promising in the gospel? What is he promising to his people? We see also in Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. And people will take that to mean that all of my sicknesses, he will cure them in this life. What is it that the gospel essentially promises? Well, it seems to be at least four things that are set forth in this verse concerning what the gospel is essentially promising. Number one, we see in verse two that the gospel is the promise that the ruler of God's people will be no less than the ancient of days. God is promising, and it's interesting hearing the different commentators on this particular statement. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, of Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler over Israel, who shall come forth is or whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, here's what, and John Gill is very helpful here. He says that surely this means that this, he is coming, he who is coming is according to an old standing promise that God has made. Surely that would be the case because the promise that is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And says it could be according to the prophetic promises of old. Yes, the Lord has been promising and more progressively unveiling the promise of Genesis 3.15, which is why you see scattered throughout the prophets, Isaiah included, in fact, Isaiah especially concerning what the Messiah would be. So it is from of old, but in the original, the idea is not just that this is an old promise, but what God is promising is that he who is the ancient of days is the one that will come and be your ruler. Now we know from the Old Testament that the term ancient of days refers to God himself. This is the way Daniel refers to him as the ancient of days. And so what God is promising, essentially, he is promising to govern and rule his people, not with a good man. But he's promising to govern and rule his people with the ancient of days made flesh. That's, a, that, that's what he's promising. He is promising a ruler who is himself the ancient of days to govern and rule his people. But not only shall he who comes will be the ancient of days, but he will actually shepherd. He will shepherd the people of God. And notice this, not, he's not going to herd them in. He will shepherd the people of God with the strength of the Lord. He will guide God's people. He will guard and protect God's people with the strength of the Lord. That's the way it's expressed in verse 4. He says, and he, uh, yeah, in verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So he will, he who is the ancient of days will govern his people with the strength of the Lord, which is why Peter can say that Christ is the shepherd. 
He is, and the writer of Hebrews can talk about Christ as being the good shepherd of his people. He will shepherd his people with the strength of the Lord, he who is the ancient of days. But thirdly, not only will he strengthen, God is promising in the gospel that he will shepherd his people, which is really the ultimate fulfillment of the, of the 23rd Psalm. But thirdly, he will give them the eternal security and the majesty of the name of the Lord. He who is the ancient of, ancient of days, who will shepherd God's people in the strength of the Lord, shall really do so by giving them the benefit of the name of the Lord. Again, in verse 4. And uh, in the majesty, he, uh, he, uh, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. One of the things that we see in the ironic benediction is that at the end of that benediction, the Lord tells Aaron, and by this you shall put my name on my people, on this people. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, it says this, that they, speaking of the redeemed of the Lord, they shall see his face and his name shall be on their forehead. God is essentially promising in the gospel is that the ancient of days will come forth in flesh and be the shepherd over the people of God and he will give them the, or, or strengthen or lead them and guide them in the strength of the Lord and brothers and sisters the strength of the Lord is the means by which we are able to do anything that is pleasing to him. You notice again the difference. Israel Old Testament geopolitical national Israel, the terms by which they were to remain the people of God was them obeying the law of God. Their failure meant that they disqualified themselves from the promise of God. But God in his gracious gospel promise guarantees us that we will be his people. And we will be his people not because we obey, but because we are his people, we will obey because he will supply us with the strength to honor him and to respond to him. Paul says it is God who is at work in you, causing you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the strength of the Lord will be given to us by the one who shepherds us. And we are all therefore being shepherded by the ancient of days. And what he does is he puts his name on us. He, 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 get, he guides us and he nurtures us in the strength and in the majesty of the, most, of the name of the Most High God. And brothers and sisters, when God writes his name on us and claims us as his, which he does through the sealing of the Spirit, we can never lose his name. You, it's not going to wear out. His name is on you. But the fourth thing that we see that the one will come or what he will do, and this is essentially what the gospel is all about, and that's where we see uh, 5A, he shall be their peace. What God is promising in the gospel, what Jesus delivers in his first advent 
is that he is the ancient of days who has taken on flesh. It is he who shepherds us. He strengthens us in the strength of the Lord. He puts the name of the Lord upon us. And by him we have peace. Now I, I read a couple of um, things that I saw recently on the internet about this season and how this is a season of peace. And, you know, if we, anything that can get humans to act good is good. Anything that can get us to stop sniping at each other and vilifying each other and killing each other, I don't care what it is that we do. If we can, if we can stop otherizing each other and if we can stop vilifying one another, even for five minutes, that's good. But brothers and sisters, the great gift of the gospel and the great gift that is delivered by Jesus in his first advent is not that which makes us get along necessarily in the world, although I do say that the peace of God is supposed to be characteristic, one of the characteristic features of the covenant community of God. We don't expect, we should be leaders in our communities, in our homes, but it makes sense when City Hall acts a fool. But that shouldn't be characteristic of the people of God. You see, we are the peace because here's what the ancient of days has come to be for us. He has come to be peace. And what is meant by that first and foremost is that what Jesus comes to do in his first advent is deal with our greatest problem. And our greatest problem is not our neighbor. Our greatest problem is our enmity with God. And so in his first advent, now we can actually claim, long before we get to heaven, we can claim that we are at peace with God. Brothers and sisters, my heart goes out to that brand of Christian who are trying to get things right, hoping at the end they'll find him saying, well done. I think that we ought to recognize that the reason we will find well done in the end is because when God sent his son, therein is our well done. And we have peace with God. We can lay down at night regardless of what's going on. We know that whatever is going on in the world, that we are at peace with God. Whatever else can explain my life falling apart, no one else liking me, whatever else is behind it, it's not because God is mad at me. God has sent forth his son to let us know that he is our peace. Essentially what God has given us in the gift of the gospel, he has given us the ancient of days, he has given us the word made flesh to shepherd and guide us and to strengthen us and to put his name upon us and to tell us every time we gather that we are his children and he's at peace with us because Jesus himself is our peace. Isaiah 53 puts it this way, that the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. The peace that we have with God. That's why when we, when we, when we pray, no matter how bad you mess up, it's not like messing up with your spouse where you got to send some flowers first and then send some candy and then, you know, send a card and 
give a car or whatever, and then test the waters to see if it's okay. No, we were enemies. We were enemies. And while we were enemies, God sent forth his son to reconcile us to him. And the thing about being reconciled to God through his son is that our, up and, our behavior is up and down, our, 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 our emotions are up and down, but the wounds that give us peace are permanent. And as long as the wounds are in the flesh of the crucified and resurrected Savior, the Father is at peace with you. You don't have to send any bribes. You don't have to try to butter him up. The Father is at peace with you because he sent the Ancient of Days to set things right with you. Now here's the third and final thing that we see that's about this gospel gift. We see the context in which it's set. We see the essential nature of that gospel gift. But here's the, 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 here's the third and final thing, and that is the unexpected source in which that gospel blessing is given. That's the whole point behind verse 2. He says, where is this going to come from? Where is the, the ancient of days? Where will he come from? What will he look like? And so therefore he says, oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the house of bread. This, this, and, and notice what he says about it. He says this tribe, he says you're barely a clan. In other words, the promises, and the blessings of God come in unexpected sources. They don't see it. They don't see it at the time of, his, of Jesus' actual birth. Nothing and no one can come from there. And by the way, I would argue the fact that there are parts of the city that no one expects anything good to come from is proof of the curse. Because when God created the heavens and the earth, everything was equal. So every neighborhood we came from was a good neighborhood. The fact of bad neighborhoods is evidence of the curse. But why? Why Bethlehem? Well, one could say this. One could say Bethlehem because he's supposed to be the son of David and there is more, there's more meat on that bone than it looks like on, on the surface because David was not only born in Bethlehem and therefore the promise of God is going to be through the seed of Bethlehem, but here's something else we see about David. When Saul was told, when Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse because that's where the next king was, David wasn't the first choice. His father didn't think he was kingly material, and therefore he didn't even include him in the lineup. And, and, and his brothers didn't think that he was kingly material, and so they didn't think anything about him being left out of the lineup. And, and so really, even Samuel, in a sense, didn't think he was kingly material. They said, you know, he sent all of his, his biggest, brightest sons, and hey, isn't that the one? And, and, and Samuel was probably looking like, yeah, that, that looks good to me. And the Lord said, no. Nope, not him. And when all of his, his big, brawny sons came strutting through, and then Samuel had to go to David, or Jesse, do you have another son somewhere? 
Well, I got a little shepherd boy. I got one. He's a, he's a scrawny kid. In fact, he's out watching the sheep. Samuel said, well, go get him. Brothers and sisters, David, who was born in Bethlehem, was not the first choice. And it's not just that. It's not just that. It's just not just that, that oh yeah, to follow in the pattern of, 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 of David coming from a place unexpected. Here's the, the truth that God is revealing. That God hides himself in unexpected things so that he could demonstrate that it's not of God because you see if he came from a particular stock someone is going to put too much stock in that tribe and what God does is he moves in a way and he produces and delivers his promise in a way that we do not expect you see we would expect if he's going to be born it must be in a palace Don't you drive through certain parts of the city and make assumptions about the state of the houses, about the people that live there, whether they are good or bad. And certainly if we were to pick a savior, we wouldn't, I'm I'm in Miami now, so can I say, because if I were in California, I would say we wouldn't go to Watts. We wouldn't go to Compton. And could I say here, we wouldn't go to Overtown? You wouldn't look in, in Little Havana? Because we would think that if he's all of this, if he is the one to whom the majesty of the name of the Lord Most High is upon, surely he wouldn't be in the projects. Surely. He would look, he would have all of the outward trappings of power and of success. What God does is he goes to the least and he shows them his power in spite of circumstances. Don't you, and and we're all guilty of this, don't we summarize people sometimes before they speak because of what we see? And here's what God has done. He sent us a savior that just looking at his resume, you wouldn't be impressed. Looking at his, at, at the, if you looked at his driver's license and you saw the address on his license, you wouldn't be impressed. But God has sent us a savior who is the ancient of days, who will shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord, who will put the majesty of the name of the Lord on these people. And where does he come from? He comes from a place that would be otherwise despised. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 53. He was not comely that we should desire him. Who would believe such a report as this? 
brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes to town, the freeways aren't blocked off. I happened to be one time driving on the 405 freeway and President Reagan was on the freeway just ahead of me. And I was only five minutes from my destination. I had to wait an hour and a half to move. I was on the 91 freeway, and he wasn't even a president. Billy Graham was on the, on the freeway in this long stretch limousine, and they had the police escorts and stopped us from moving forward. When Jesus comes to town, we expect police escorts, and all he can get is a manger. When Jesus comes to town, it's not one of the great and grand cities that you would expect. It's not one of the model cities that you would boast about if you were of Israel. He comes to Bethlehem. Because nobody thinks there's anything good to be found in Bethlehem. God hides himself in that which is unspectacular so that our faith would not be in the wrapper or the exteriors, but so that when we see him, we would see him as he is. Because the Father has revealed to us by his Spirit that in this flesh, in these mean external circumstances, is your only hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, I believe when Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1 and he talks, or 2, and he talks about God sending strong delusion, putting people under strong delusion because they have rejected the truth. Many people are determining truth by external things and are not able to see the hiddenness of God and the small, the mean, the, uns- the, the undesirable places and undesirable people. And it is in this baby born of a woman in a neglected place that the king of glory has entered in. Who would have ever thought that the outward outskirts of Judah in an outcast place like Bethlehem would be the portal by which the king of glory who was able to ascend to the hill of the Lord that he would come to us in a manger not with, angel, not with angels and, and not with doctors and the best doctors and hospitals, but with angels, with, with cows and, and livestock. And there is our Savior. Brothers and sisters, if we cannot see the glory of the Father in the birth of the King in a city like Bethlehem, Is it any wonder that we do not see the glory of the king in a crucified body on a Roman hill outside of Jerusalem? Bethlehem, oh Bethlehem, you who are little, the smallest among all of the clans of Judah, in you and out of you, Your king shall come.
Brothers and sisters, I love, I love, I've, I've mentioned before, but I, I, I love, I love uh, the, the song, uh, 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 Take Me to the Alley, Gregory Porter. He says, you know, when, when the king comes there, they're, they're trying to get the streets ready and, and gilded with, with gold, getting ready for the king. But he says, but when the king come, comes, here's what he says, don't take me there. He says, take me to the alley. Take me to where the forsaken ones are. Take me to the alley. And that's really the equivalent to where Jesus was born. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a stumbling block for some. But for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen.